0: Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder.
1: I'm Alex Argo.
2: And I'm Alex Robinson.
0: This is episode 121. Alright guys, hello again. And uh, I'm wrong again. (laughs) Today we got Beta 8, but no Xcode. So it seems kind of like more like beta seven point one, but, but they just gotta call it eight.
2: Yeah, I think we're definitely uh, getting into that final polish stage. Uh, we actually, I think we've got an official date as well for for the launch. Uh, is sept- it official or is event. it rumors? That's Phil. a rumor. Is it so just rumors? And it posted in a few different places as if it were official.
0: Yeah,
1: I but think it fits the time frame. I think they yeah. may have multiple sources, but there's no uh, invites that have gone out yet I think I think part of it
2: by the time this episode airs, we should likely have an official date of the twelfth for the media event for iPhone eight, and uh usually shortly after that. If not, that day, everything will go gold and be available.
0: I don't don't, don't think I would expect an official invitation to go out to the press until after the holiday coming
1: up.
2: Yeah, and that can definitely impact schedules a little bit.
1: Well, and it seems like one of the key points that I've seen in all these articles so far is that um, they're going to have it at the Steve Jobs Theater on the new headquarters rather than at uh, last time it was at Bill Graham. So I'm wondering if they're trying to figure out if that's even going to be ready at this point, since that'll be the first event I think they would have there.
2: Yeah, I think the last photo I saw, the landscaping wasn't done yet, but...
0: Well, landscaping, it's kind of a minor thing.
1: I would think you could still have the event without landscaping, but...
0: Right.
2: It's just got to be perfect. No, Steve would not allow that. Well, <laughs> it would have to be perfect.
1: I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, this this whole conversation will be irrelevant, and <laughs> well, uh, they'll they'll try to break some news before we release it. But this is this is as of Monday, so Monday the I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> what day is today? The Twenty eighth, Yes.
0: So, do we get a beta nine? I don't think I, so.
2: We could just go GM from here, or release candidate.
0: Well, we've got a U.S. holiday weekend this this coming weekend.
1: Yeah, I think we're getting the GM on the twelfth when they have the event. That'd be my guess.
2: And that would give. It uh, would need to give people a little bit of time to submit apps, so. You know, the developers get the gm on the 12th is that what you're saying and then about yeah. a week after that um becomes publicly available
1: yeah it sounds right
2: yeah i can see that i think the iphone's expected to ship on the 22nd uh, from the rumors i read so that would line up
1: although the only thing that i question is that iTunes Connect already has all this wording about you know when we start submitting or accepting submissions for iOS 11 stuff with that keyword, the limits will be enforced or whatever. So it could be, maybe they opened submissions earlier. I don't know, but I feel like you need a GM before you can accept submissions. So we'll see.
2: Yeah. Well, in terms of iOS 11 uh, features, if it's just metadata, then you know, that that would be a different thing.
0: Yeah, but you can't submit an app using a beta SDK. Right.
2: So, yeah.
1: That would be not good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow that. I mean, they do, do allow that from a beta perspective from a test flight, but not from a, from a production release.
0: And even with the betas, they're not always the fastest about them because I think it was Monday or Tuesday. We were still uploading test flight betas, where we had to use um, Xcode beta five. Yeah, because they weren't accepting Beta 6 uploads right away. So you guys, uh I guess all these other hardware companies are trying to get their hardware announcements out before the iPhone to, comes out or before the iPhone eclipses them. And so we had Samsung releasing their, their new Note 8, I guess that was. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's the Note 8.
0: Yeah, it's the Firestarter. And then Fitbit of all companies, I guess they're, they just released a smartwatch and they, uh, they recently had acquired Pebble. So I guess this is just a really the, the newest Pebble watch that they were going to sell, maybe a little bit revamped. Do you know Argo? Does it look anything like that? You are a big Pebble fan.
1: I liked my Pebble before I got the Apple Watch. Um, I don't know. the it's hardware sort of... doesn't look super, super pebbly. But the uh, fact that their SDK is web-based kind of sounds like they may have used the use Pebbles IP of their SDK potentially and just thrown it onto the smartwatch they were already developing
0: yeah it's mostly web and s- or javascript and s v g which it seems like a lot uh like something that you would like you would need a nice processor inside that watch to make that perform well, but this thing has a four day battery life
2: the pebble was a um
1: yeah the pebble was also a javascript based s d k so i, I so, think
2: the so what, wasn't it it was a um E-ink, E-ink, display. yeah, yeah. yeah. This
0: is this is a live display.
2: Yeah, it does not look like E-ink at all. But you know, you you can get a really long battery life from E-ink. So unless it's come along a long way, <laughs> this doesn't doesn't look like. Well, I know Pebble, Pebble. there's
1: there is color E-ink displays now.
2: Um, there are, but they these look like pretty crisp, bright colors, which it, typically. Isn't something you'd get from e-ink.
0: The, the color e-ink displays always had a little bit of a washed-out look to them. And it's probably just a lack of
2: backlight.
1: Yeah, it looks like it is an LCD touchscreen. Um,
2: it looks, you know, reasonably nice from the the marketing photos. You know, we'll kind of see. I think uh, Fitbit's been struggling over the last year or two. So.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like all the other companies. Um, you know, your Samsungs and all your other Android watch makers, even like some of the more niche like players who made smart watches have all like kind of quietly sunset most of their watch products. So I don't know. Fit Fitbit, I guess they have a big following with the the fitness people who, you know, would just get the much less expensive fitness trackers rather than the full smartwatch thing. But I don't know. This, this seems doomed to me.
2: (laughs) They have so many products out there now too. It becomes kind of complicated to even figure out what to buy and which products switch. Um, They also, I don't know, know how new this product is, but along with this, they have their, their wireless headphones as well. I mean, they are, Very much a niche player around, you know, fitness.
1: Well, they're not a niche player in fitness. I think.
2: I think in terms of wearables and headphones, they're they're definitely focused on the the fitness users.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there's anything special about those headphones or not. Other than they might just be a Fitbit branded Bluetooth headphone that that they just contracted with some. Chinese manufacturer overseas, you can get any of those kinds of things on Amazon for ten, twelve bucks or something. They're not great quality, but they're there. And maybe this is just something like that, where they just license this product to be made for them. And yeah, it's probably better than a twelve-dollar pair of Bluetooth headphones, but maybe not a whole lot more.
2: Yeah. Well, Under Armour has their headphones and uh you know with the Fitbit Ionic they've got a an Adidas co-branded uh version of the watch with with uh, instead of uh circular pattern on the band they have a hexagonal <laughs> pattern uh it's it's a little bit too on the nose I think but you know Adidas is a decent brand for them to, to partner with on that.
0: Well, Nike was already taken, so they had to go with somebody.
2: Right. I, I, Competition is always good. Um, anything that drives Apple to continue to improve is is a good thing. Android Wear has been improving, but uh, Fitbit's probably a more serious competitor on the wearable front.
0: Well, they are the number one fitness wearable.
1: Well, so actually I was just looking. I pulled up a real, some real-time follow-up uh, from 2016 to 2017, first quarter. Fitbit was down from 25% market share. or Sorry, from 35% down to 13.2%. And Apple uh, in the quarter one of 2017 actually had the highest market share ever. So even in the wearable market, Fitbit is... Having a major downturn, so
0: interesting, and this thing being priced three hundred dollars <laughs> that's you could buy an Apple Watch cheaper than that if you buy the series one
1: yeah, and it'll have a nicer display, much better app ecosystem if you ask me, although I'm, I'm I don't seeing... think the
2: app ecosystem's a driver at this yeah. point
1: well, yeah <laughs> on, on Apple watch. Apps are lackluster too. You're right. So, <laughs> uh, the one thing they may have going for them is you can probably do completely custom watch faces, which you still can't do as much on Apple. Although, you can do the picture watch face, which lets you give any background. You just can't customize the text and all that stuff in the fonts. But
2: I think, you know, the multi day battery is probably a selling point for some people. Uh, the built-in GPS is definitely an important thing for fitness goers. The aesthetics might not appeal to everybody, but it looks like it's a pretty, relatively speaking, a, a thin smartwatch. Um, that has got some nice sporty aesthetics. I don't know if the bands are swappable or not.
0: They are. They have a few different bands to start out with. They run about the same... The Apple prices, thirty dollars for these bands.
2: Yeah, thirty dollars for something that costs less than a dollar at the bank. Yes.
0: <laughs> um. Yeah. I don't know. I don't see where this is going to to bring Fitbit back.
1: Yeah, it just reeks of too little, too late to me.
2: Could be. We'll see. Um, it probably is a little foreshadowing for the likely announcement of a new Apple watch this year and maybe in the September event.
0: Yeah. I think that's pretty much a given, right? We haven't really heard a whole lot of
2: rumors, but yeah, I mean, there's been some, I pretty much the biggest rumor is it will have a cell radio. Um, you wouldn't be able won't to make be a
1: design refresh yeah.
2: Yeah. Which kind of surprises me. I was expecting the, the, the this year is to finally have uh, a n- a new design, um, if not just thinner. Uh, you know, something a little bit different than usual, but doesn't sound like that's happening. Not that what's out there now is bad. Uh, some of the Apple Wear watches are still a lot thicker than that. Android. You wear. mean
1: the and yeah.
2: <laughs> what did I say? Apple Wear. Uh, yes, Android Wear. Sorry.
0: We probably shouldn't record on Mondays. We make all kinds of mistakes like that.
2: I I don't know if that's uh, specific to a (laughs) day. Yeah, I don't think not
1: recording on Monday is going to help that at all.
2: (laughs) At
0: least they do have a third-party SDK. I had a hard time finding any information about that originally. And if you search for Ionic SDK, unfortunately you get some... JavaScript, mobile framework. And, yeah, it's just a hybrid app thing, so their name is maybe not the best choice in this case. Good luck to them. Wish them well. It's definitely not convincing enough to make me throw down my Apple Watch for that. So, Alex, you've been working on some command line swift
2: yeah yeah just kind of getting into it uh, for some utility applications but i was actually really pleasantly surprised with how easy it was to use the swift package manager to build an executable for the command line and just basically just create your package.swift putting your dependencies in and uh generate the projects and you can generate a generate an Xcode project from that as well and it works really well and is
1: this this SPM with uh, all the new bits or is this the currently released SPM? You can
2: do it with the previous version Uh, there is a decent number of minor changes to the the package.swift in four, and I did end up uh, using four instead of three. But, uh, yeah, the, it, it, worked well, uh, was able to create my command line project fairly easily. I uh, could do most of it command line or, or in a text editor if I wanted to, but cause you can generate the project, uh, you can jump in there and use Xcode. And then, if you need to make changes to your dependency, you can regenerate the Xcode project. Um, so you don't really want to manually modify that project outside of what is generated.
0: So SPM but, just invokes like Swift C directly, the Swift compiler directly. There's no Xcode build magic or anything underneath.
2: Um, uh, there may be some Xcode build, like if you're using Xcode, you can still run it through Xcode. So I imagine that's using Xcode build, uh, but you can, um, yeah, you could you can do pretty much everything through command line if you really wanted to. And then you can export the project, the executable, and, uh, there's an option you can add in uh, to bundle the Swift runtime, so you're not dependent on any specific Swift version, and you can just copy it into your bin folder and use it like any executable.
0: And is it does it distribute the Swift runtime as a, a .so? Right, because other platforms I, don't do frameworks.
2: I did not look into that uh, too closely, uh, so I'm not quite sure how it's bundled underneath. Uh, but it does create an executable. Uh, I did use Alamo Fire and PromiseKit, so I was able to pull in some Swift third-party libraries uh, that I was that I bundled inside of it as well. Um, but that's a good point. I, d- I did not dig in under the hood to see what the executable looks like in terms of the static libraries.
0: Okay. How about command line parsing? Have you, did you have to do any of that?
2: I, I'm working up to that. I've, I've got a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to probably add some, some more things. And I'm looking at maybe using another third party library to make handling command line arguments a little bit easier. Uh, Kyle Fuller's got a few utilities for, uh, command line apps or, or non, uh, iOS apps. Then I might pull in. But yeah, for the most part, it works the same. Uh, I, I did set up my code, so the, the actual uh, meat of the application is a separate module, independent of the command line, and then a pretty thin command line layer on top of that.
0: Yeah, because really the command line is just another interface into your code, just Correct. like a yeah. GUI screen could be.
2: Yeah, so I had a separate library for uh the actual functionality and then really thin wrapper uh for taking in the arguments and calling out to the library.
0: That makes pretty good sense.
2: Yeah. So, you know, one thing I like about this is you know, for some of the things that I do, you know, it tends to get a little annoying with certain Ruby based utilities that, you know, breaks when the version of Ruby changes or, um, might have different projects that require different versions and some dependencies go away. And like, every time you build, build it new, it's got to download all the dependencies. So this kind of packages that all up for, for these little utilities that I'm going to do something custom for anyway.
0: Yeah. So you think you're going you're going to be expanding on your Swift command line, Foo?
2: I might. Um, you know, right now, like, one one of my bigger apps, I'm not using Fastlane just because it adds a little more complexity than I need. I'm really just shelling out 2x build with some of the other utilities. So uh, I might actually wrap that up into a Swift uh, script or command line app just to make it a little bit easier to distribute.
1: So you're going to do a fast lane replacement?
2: <laughs> sort of. I mean I'm not using fast lane, but something that that's custom to what I need. Specific.
1: You guys heard it here first, Ludacris Lane coming in <laughs> later this year from uh, from Alex Robinson.
2: Yeah. So nothing against Fast Lane, <laughs> it's just Every time, like, you know, one of my projects, I'm using Fastlane on. uh, I run, you know, every time I run the bundle install or or whatever, it's downloading like twenty different dependencies and.
1: You really don't have anything against Fastlane.
2: Well, it's not (laughs) it's not Fastlane itself. It's just the. The fact that it's a interpreted script and with lots of third party dependencies, and you know, when you get a new version of OS X that has a different version of Ruby on it, uh, you have to rebuild everything.
1: Yeah, I would have said that my problem with Fastlane is Ruby.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and Ruby's a fine language. It's just for these utilities, I'd rather have something a little bit more stable.
1: Oh, I don't know if it's even stable. It's just the ecosystem. Ruby makes it kind of a poor fit for uh, a tool that you use,
0: uh, kind of in the
1: Apple, a system tool that you use in the Uh iOS ecosystem. I think that's the biggest issue to me.
2: Yeah. And there's part of me that would like to use a language, the language I use every day for my utilities to support those apps it's a little bit harder to jump back and forth between different languages. I'm already jumping between Objective-C and and Swift on a daily basis, among other things. So, you know, having to also interface with Ruby fairly often and, and Gems and Bundler and, and those utilities uh, gets complicated. Like, you know, I've got a starter project for iOS apps that... Uh, I've got it set up, but I use Python uh, for the template engine to generate the project, and then I use uh, Bundler, <laughs> install Bundler, and, which then installs CocoaPods and Fastlane, <laughs> and <laughs> and then those then install third party dependencies. So it, it's a little, uh, I don't know, it, it it's a little more complicated than it probably needs to be because the depends. There's prerequisites in order to install the tools to install the dependencies. <laughs> if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> the dependencies, yeah. Yeah. I'm not even going to try to summarize, but yes, it is a. It's just like a whole bunch of sticks and glue cobbled together, pretty much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm still kind of jealous of Android and Gradle because it's a little bit more. Um, Coherent ecosystem for their dependency and build tools. Yeah, that's definitely and the true. IDE has pretty good support for it.
1: Yeah, you want to hear about a bundle of, of stick and glue? We were working on a new app and we're using Unity, um, and we added ad support to it uh, the other week. Uh, and that required Cocoa Pods. So, you know, there's our fun Ruby stuff coming in, and that completely breaks Unity's cloud build system. So I had uh convert our build over to Fastlane, so now I have to shell out to Unity to build an iOS project and then use Fastlane to take that project, run Cocoa Pods, and, and build it for iOS. So... That was a, a fun, fun experience.
0: Yeah, I don't think that sounds very fun.
1: Yeah, although the one thing that was kind of cool is, I always, I always struggle with what the right way is to, to set the build number when you're uploading stuff to test flight, and I actually only with a couple lines of code got fastlane to basically. It logs into iTunes Connect and pulls whatever the greatest number is for the current version that you have, and then it adds one to it and uses that for the build number.
2: Yeah, that's. <laughs> for the version number or the build number. Build number. Okay, so is it it's, is it looking at what's on test flight or yeah. what's yeah, okay? It looks.
1: It, it log. It uses Spaceship to to pull the. For whatever version number you're building, the uh, current um, build number, which the the reason this is a hassle, as you guys know, is when you commit stuff or when you build for for test flight, they always have to be incrementing. And uh, in Apple's version of test flight, which when people are building on, so to preface this, I used to just have like. Uh, a command line script that would basically like count the number of commits uh, in the current branch, uh, well, in the branches that were checked out, and then use that as the build number. But when people have different numbers of branches checked out, that changed the number of commits locally, and sometimes you could have a scenario where um, you basically break uh, your builds because someone has a different branch checked out, which seems like a dependency that you should not have in your in your build system but because of apple's build number requirements
2: yeah another another common strategy is to increment the build number and then commit that back to version control but depending on how you've got things set up that can get you into a weird cycle of you 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 create a change then in the version control system that kicks off yet another build
1: yeah and that's that Kind of falls apart too, like I like my other scenario when you have multiple branches going at the same time. So
0: I usually just let the build server assign a build number to it and let it keep track.
2: Yeah, you can if you're using like Buddy Build or yeah, pretty much any uh, system they have their own yeah build buddy number and systems. systems or Team City, a- um, any of them. Team City, that- yeah, they'll all do that. That works fine if you do everything on the build server, if you also have people uh, doing builds from their machines, which maybe that's not a best practice it's on not. a team. No, <laughs> uh, not the best life. but no. but you can get out of sync, obviously. Uh, but yes, yeah, you if you're going to use a build server and let the build server manage the build number, then you want to do everything on the build server. And there's probably other reasons for doing that, but yeah
0: I actually um, that. did this on the project that I was working on last week, where it would look for the build number environment variable as a build step and then it would invoke uh plist buddy this was actually for uh putting the version number in the settings bundle so that when our beta testers report bugs they could say this it was this build number yeah but uh I did it where it would look for the build number environment variable set by the CI server. And if it didn't find it, it would just set that value to like Xcode as the value so that then you could see that this build came just as a local Xcode build. So you would have best of both worlds in a way. You would still have, uh, this is only for the, the settings bundle. You, you still would have to invoke, uh, it's called AGV tool and you can pass in an actual build number for that. And It's a Apple supply tool that it sets all your build numbers and all your info plist files. And you
2: because you also have to have your extensions need to yes. match, so every extension and every gets a little bit annoying if you are doing it manually.
1: Yeah, Apple has this thing where you can tell it to basically like auto increment that, I think.
0: Uh, AGV tool will take it as a command line parameter, the actual build number, or I think it was really built more as a subversion tool. Yeah, well, yeah, it makes a lot more sense in subversion
1: because you have auto-incrementing numbers for all of your commits.
0: Right. So, yeah, you could also pass it in a SVN URL, and it would pull that number and use that as the build.
2: I think you can also set it up so it will commit the change back yeah, uh, but that again gets you back into the uh, your build system needs to be smart enough not to kick off a new build for that. Right.
1: So, sort of, yeah, and also branches again. <laughs> oh, this is so horrible. Git, Git is awesome that it's this awesome distributed version control system, but there's all these edge cases that you're like, oh, man, I got to deal with that. <laughs>
0: Well, the, the git hash is just that it's a hex, but in, doesn't Apple require the build number to be, uh, higher than the previous build number all the time?
1: Yeah. It's got to be numerical and higher than the previous build number. So,
0: right. So your hashes aren't guaranteed to be higher than your previous one. So you could get into a bad situation there.
1: What? Yeah, another strategy I've seen people do is they basically do like a timestamp, so they'll do like 2017 dot month dot year dot day dot hour dot minute <laughs> for their build number, because mm-hmm. I I think you can do as many dots as you want. It's <laughs> it uses like s- some semantic versioning, so mm-hmm. that's that's another option. <laughs> There's lots of yeah. options out there, and they all like have their weird. Issues, because if you do semantic versioning, like, with a date type thing, then it's hard to actually get back to what commit was actually in that build. You have to, like, go look it up in your build system. A lot of these solutions you have to, too. Right. Oh, I just wish they got rid of their build system or, like, would auto-increment it on their own and keep their own count. <laughs> it just seems goofy that they're pulling from a, a P-list that you have to manually edit.
0: Yeah, well so your ci server will also i think would export the build ha- the uh, git hash as a environment variable that you could then also include into a p list yeah so that
1: well yeah there's a, there's every one of these solutions there's like all these work cases that you have to okay now i need to handle that now i need to embed a you know a commit hash in my app somehow and there's always there's not like I wish there is a simple like yeah it just works, and uh, just I guess that's why companies like that are gigantic like Facebook have like whole teams of people who just do release management and automation stuff. Yeah, well it's I, not a simple problem.
0: I think at Facebook they commit so fast that Git doesn't even work for them. Aren't they using a mono repo? I know Google does.
1: I'm not sure, yeah. but I don't know if a monorepo precludes Git. Well, what else, what else do they if,
0: use? If Well, Google uses a homegrown thing and it's
1: their own version control system.
0: Yeah. With like Git exports, you kind know, of like a Git SVN, but whatever their thing <laughs> is. But the, it's because they have so much code and they have so many developers committing and it's a single repo. Imagine a thousand people using one Git repo. But they, Google has way more than a thousand people. So if it's hard enough to imagine a thousand people trying to use a Git repo, constantly committing to the thing, I mean, this, there's, there's no way you could actually be able to pull down changes and then make sure your stuff still worked and then commit back before somebody else and committed something, and then you would have to do the whole vicious cycle again. Google has found some ways around it that's not clean.
2: Just kind of following up on what you were talking about, Alex, with the uh, semantic versioning using dates, I think technically semantic versioning is... Is it only um, major,
1: minor bug fix or whatever? can only go three deep?
2: Yeah. yeah and then what you're talking about at least some people call that calendar versioning and uh there's actually a website out there called calver.org <laughs> that talks about different schemes using calendar and in some case studies to go along with it yeah it's kind of interesting uh i i've definitely seen some some uh, commercial products using this scheme and it, it does definitely solve a problem uh if you don't it wanna rely, if you don't problem. wanna rely on just purely <laughs> incrementing a number, you can use the date uh so it's kind of interesting um probably worth checking out
1: so real time follow up it looks like Facebook is using Mercurial for their source control really apparently, they decided that uh back in twenty fourteen that uh git's internals would not handle their scale. But I guess Mercurials does, and as of 2016, I found a talk about managing their source control at Facebook scale. It, it said, uh, so they still use Mercurial?"
2: So, hmm. and Sun Microsystems had moved to Mercurial before they shut down. Who? Um, Who? It's okay. Sun Microsystems. Might have heard of it. it no, probably yeah. not. Uh, <laughs> but they were definitely working in a large scale as well. Uh, Mercurial's got a lot of the same advantages as Git, and there's even aliases, so you can get a lot of the same commands with Mercurial.
1: I think most, a lot of people who like use Mercurial are super hardcore Mercurial fans, and I think the the main reason Git caught on more than Mercurial is the community, not like the technology behind Git from from what I could tell.
2: Well, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's significantly different. Um you know, I think I think structurally it oh, works yeah. very it's, much the same. It's I mean
1: it's still a distributed version control system, but um i, I have think not seen a GitHub style,
2: are... style solution for Mercurial. Um Bitbucket.
1: Bitbucket you're right, Mercurial, you're right, Bitbucket yeah.
2: did have Mercurial.
1: I, I think the co- the command line tools for for Mercurial use words that make a lot more sense to people. I know when anyone is new at Git, uh, it's it's just kind of like a whole different paradigm that they have to figure out. And then you'd use it for a while, and you figure out what you know all these esoteric commands are. Once you get past you know commit, merge, branch, and that you know your basics, but yeah. I, th- I think some of that stuff is a little bit better thought out. Well, i I'm I think it world. was,
2: uh, I think it was intentional on Git. You know, they were basically taking the the Linux um, approach of having s- very simple, discrete commands that could be combined into more complicated.
0: Uh, yeah, really, the the very first versions of Git were nothing more than shell scripts that Linus
2: Torvalds had wrote yeah so it's it's got a little bit of that kind of said awk type of feel to it and and you can do some really powerful things, but figuring out how to do it is not necessarily intuitive unless you live in that world.
0: It's just one giant linked list yep <laughs> <laughs> honestly it is there's um there was a talk at a regional conference. Years ago, by uh, Jim Weirich, who's now passed on, but you might be able to find that talk on YouTube or something. But he did yeah, it a, should
2: be—he's done a the the Git one a few or distributed version control a few times, so I, I know there's at least one or two videos out there.
0: Yeah, but that explains it really well. He basically just kind of goes through this route of making up a source control system, and in the beginning, you're you don't really know what it is that he's making up, but it turns out that it's Git. But by reinventing Git in his talk, he basically did a great Explains job of expiring, how it works. Yeah, explaining yeah. it.
1: I'll try to find that link for the show notes. Uh, it should be a good video. Someone's super bored and wants to learn about version control.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a confusing topic. Without being distributed and then throwing in that extra thing that everybody has a definitive copy of the code gets even more complicated. So yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's all the time we have for today. You guys want to tell us where we can find you on the, the internet?
2: You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo.
0: And I'm at Sam Corder. The podcast is at SharedInstance on Twitter. And if you'd like to discuss anything we talked about today, come to our Slack and you can get an invite there at chat.sharedinstance.com. See you guys later.